0: Welcome to Independence, the FIEC podcast. Uh, My name's Phil Topham, Executive Director of the FIEC, and we're going to look at the news uh, for a few minutes uh, today. With me is our National Director, John Stevens. Good morning, John. Good morning, Phil. And Adrian Reynolds, our Head of National Ministries. Good morning, Adrian. Good to see you. Well, brothers, last week we recorded a special episode of the podcast, just reflecting on the death of Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, You can um, look out for that. We'll put it in the the, the show notes uh, at the bottom. Uh, It's been a A week of sombre reflecting, but, but actually great affection for Her Majesty, I think, hasn't it, in this period of national mourning?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's been a a sort of a a remarkable week in many ways. There's been a very seamless transition, it seems, to the reign of King Charles, who seems to have started well with his public address to the nation. Mm. Largely, there has been, I think, an expression of deep affection for the Queen, gratitude for her reign and rule. I think that's been the overwhelming view. Um, There's been some protests. There have been some sort of um, sort of people who have uh, kind of objected to the Queen's rule. Um, There's been a bit around the Commonwealth of it, reminding people of colonialism, and there's been some ambiguity, um, which I think is the problem of the fact. That the Queen both represents the British government, but but is also an individual. And I think within the UK itself, we see the Queen primarily as an individual who we know, rather than as simply representing uh, a kind of an institution. I think the fact that large crowds have wanted to gather to mm. pay respects um, is 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 the case. I, I don't think it, it's been um a period of great national sorrow at an emotional level in quite the same way it's not quite like the death of diana mm. which was I a shock in I, a way this was less so, so. there's been yeah. a pause. you know a yeah. coffin has passed people yeah. have been applauding yeah. her which yeah. is the modern, modern yeah. thing to do but, but i think i think that you know it's not the death of somebody young that was totally mm. u- unexpected and maybe people didn't identify with the queen as being like them in quite in quite quite the same way so it's different um uh in uh, in that sense um, uh yeah, and uh, preparing for the funeral, it's going to be a remarkable gathering of world leaders. I mean, astonishing the numbers of heads of states, heads of government who are going to be gathered together in, in one place um, at one time.
2: I think we've also seen the humanity of the royal family, mm. which has really struck me. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit last week in the podcast about how we ought to be... Praying for them as as human beings created in God's image. Uh, one of our colleagues, Andy Hunter, went along to the Royal Mile in Edinburgh, and they they he was just at the front there as they as they walked past. And his comment was that Prince Charles, sorry King Charles, was a bit shorter than he thought. But uh, but actually, just you know, we've we've seen lots of um, uh, HD 4K close ups, haven't mm-hmm. we, mm-hmm. of the royal family? Um, I I found that that vigil thing when they were all standing in front of the coffin actually very uncomfortable. I thought it's a shame they had to be put through that. It's a relatively modern tradition. I don't think it was necessary. But actually, you know, just sort of seeing the grief on people's faces, um, on, on the king especially, and then people filing past and observing that, all, all felt a bit gawkish. And I, I really actually, in a way that I, I, I thought was unexpected, felt a deep sense of compassion for the royal family, just just trying to grieve someone who was a family member, mm-hmm. but obviously was also a public figure, and, tr- and trying to get that balanced right. And, and actually most of the grief that they've had to kind of express as being in, through public events, it seems. And it just, it seems a shame to me, but mm. there we are. Mm. I, th- I think it, it gave me a, a deep sense of compassion for them as human beings.
0: And Princes William and Harry coming together, yeah. a bit of reconciliation potentially there?
1: Well, yeah, I, th- I, mean, I think firstly, it's worth noting there's been perhaps a slightly different tone than we might have expected for this kind of royal event. I think that's been evident in the way that Prince Charles has spoken and was obviously very emotional and moving in the way that he spoke. I think people have not known quite how to respond. So um, there was some initial confusion, should events be cancelled or not should um, uh, sort of uh Shops close on on the day of the funeral, or even ahead of that. I think quite yes, rightly like, most are closing on fact. the day or center yeah. parts. They, and I think that showed that people didn't really know quite what the right thing was to do. And I think it was quite remarkable that Prince Charles encouraged people to continue in events, and mm. what he said that he didn't want this to disrupt public life too much. And I think that's a a really striking difference. Mm. Um, uh, 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 but one must remember that a lot of the elements of the Queen's funeral were actually planned by the, by the Queen herself. Mm. Mm. It's a significant um, change
2: because we're still calling him Prince Charles, look, yeah, King, ah, yeah, so King, King Charles, Charles, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but you're absolutely right. To.
1: I think something that's been very much in the public mind is Prince William and Harry coming together. Mm, that's mm. been a very tragic story of sort of what appears to be a kind of family breakdown and family argument. I think people have really appreciated what appears to be a sense of reconciliation between them. Even today, it's been announced that Prince Harry will be allowed to wear military uniform mm. for the funeral, which um, is obviously very significant and important to him. So little bits of protocol are changing Um, very, very, very rapidly. But I think we do love stories of reconciliation. I think kind of uh, brothers who apparently haven't met even when they've been sort of relatively close to each other, uh, grief has brought them together and a death has brought them um, together. And in many ways, that's a deeply biblical story, really, that those who are alienated from one another are united Mm. and brought together. And um, often it's death that does that. So one thinks about um, uh, kind of Ishmael and Isaac being brought together to bury, uh, kind of um, Abraham. You've got the great reconciliation story in the Bible of Jacob and Esau, who mm. had kind of gone their separate ways, but actually were ultimately reconciled. Of course, that that is itself the gospel story of kind of how through the death of Jesus, those who are alienated, not just from God but from one another, are reconciled as brothers. And actually. At the biggest level at a a human level we as a kind of humanity were created in the image of God but we've become divided by all sorts of different things um, by race by nationality by culture Um, but actually the gospel through the Lord Jesus brings us into reconciliation um, with one another and that's kind of a good good news that's what the gospel is all about and to just sort of see that pictured in some way and one hopes that it will be a real deep lasting um, kind of reconciliation so I think there's
0: been massive public appreciation of that. And we've looked back on uh, great public duty that Her Majesty, the, the Queen was involved in. Uh, and, and John, you, I think you likened it to sort of a, a Christ-like duty mm. really in, the, in her service and giving up all of her life in service.
1: Yeah, I think lots of people have pointed to the Queen and her example of dedication, the way that she faithfully kept the vow that she made in 1947. Many of us will never know the personal sacrifices she would have made. I mean, one thinks of the, 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 the numerous things she will have attended, the people that she will have spoken to. Um, it's been a life of service. And most people, uh, you know, cease working in that way well before they reach you know, their 70s. The Queen has gone on and was working almost until just before she died. So it is it is a remarkable life of dedication service, putting the nation um, uh, sort of first. And I think people have drawn that comparison with the Lord Jesus. And of course, because the Queen herself did, she spoke in uh, sort of numerous kind of Christmas messages about the example of Jesus, of love and service. And that's sense, she pictures something very significant about, um, again, the Christian story that we believe in a God who stepped into our world, who was prepared to serve and give give himself, who put his people um, ahead of his own Kind of um, interests to be able to to save and rescue them. So there is something deeply kind of Christian in in that example. But I think it's it's worth us remembering that as with every single human being, um, we only in some small measure picture what Christ has done um, for us. I think this language of example is really. Um, interesting biblically because the Bible does give us lots of examples and we're used to reading the Bible and looking into the lives of all of the characters and thinking how does that kind of provide an example for us some preaching in some churches is largely moral example drawn from the lives of Bible characters but actually the big Bible story is that those are all just partial glimpses of uh, the real example which is Jesus himself and I think um actually we 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 should be cautious about making human beings our example as if that is the the ultimate. It's actually yeah. Jesus who is the ultimate one who um served and sacrificed. And I think um even in relation to the queen, the queen served, but she continued to serve from a position of some privilege. She was able to withdraw to Sandringham yeah. at Christmas to Balmoral. Yeah. She enjoyed um a lifestyle um that although she was um herself very um abstemious, actually she was surrounded by kind of great wealth. Um, we need to remember that the Lord Jesus goes way beyond that. He mm. kind of gave up the glory of heaven. He became poor. He was born in a stable. Um, he he lived a human life in a kind of an occupied country, uh, a life of poverty in which he apparently owed, owned nothing. Yeah. So his example of service and sacrifice goes way beyond um, the example of the queen or or indeed of any human being. Who, n- no one has ever done what Jesus has done in that sense.
2: And I think you, um, you, you touched on um, just earlier on the funeral, and, and it's worth thinking on the funeral, about the funeral in that context. Mm. So um, I, I think we ought to be praying that the funeral will exalt Jesus mm, as mm. the ultimate servant king. I think there is a danger in these moments. As all of us know, I mean, many of the people who will be listening and watching will take funerals. It can sometimes be very difficult not to make funerals just wholly about the person who's died. Um, especially if you've got short crematorium service. and and I think what we're really praying for for the service on on Monday, which has long been planned, but we don't have any details of it yet as of today. Um, I, I think we're hoping and praying that the Dean of Westminster who's who's chairing the service, the Archbishop of Canterbury who's who's speaking, that actually it will it will point people towards Christ. I, I think possibly, is this right? Um, certainly in our country, more people will be watching a church service on Monday. Than ever have probably in the last forty years, mm. maybe maybe the exception of, of the funeral of Diana. So it is it is an exceptional moment. We were praying for it in our small group. We quick criticise, aren't we, um, when the gospel isn't preached? But here we are, advance of the moment. We need to be praying actually that the gospel will be clearly preached. It, it does feel an odd thing. The whole um, the whole the whole day has been planned by the Earl Marshal. Um, he sort of led the committee and, and sort of led it all up. He's a Catholic, of course, mm. <laughs> which is slightly odd juxtaposition. So I'm really praying for a clear proclamation of Christ as the servant king, mm. um, and and even calling people to follow Him. That w- that would be that would be astounding and really significant. So we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what songs are going to be sung. We can guess, but we don't know yet. Um, so I, I, that's my prayer, and that's what we've been praying in our church. I think that's what all Christians should be praying. That whatever our churchmanship, we should be thinking. You know, here is an opportunity where people will tune into a service. They will be listening. Mm. You know, they won't be zoning out in the service. They are listening to hear what people say. And actually, it's, it's an extraordinary moment.
1: Okay. I think that's entirely right. Um, I mean, although the Earl marshals planned it, um, it actually, it, or planned the pageantry, the Queen herself has actually Indeed. contributed a great amount Indeed. to the service. Yeah. Yeah. But I do, I do think this this is a, 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 there's going to be a worldwide audience that is immense yeah. And, and in in that sense it's an amazing opportunity for the good news of Christ and yeah. what he's done to And all those death, world leaders proclaim, absolutely, listening
2: to you know what um, potentially could be gospel proclamation
1: and I think we ought to be praying earnestly for the archbishop of canterbury yeah. who is preaching into that situation mm-hmm. both to be able to give um Kind of a testimony to the Queen herself and appreciation of the Queen, but actually to point us to the Lord Jesus mm. and uh, what an astonishing opportunity to be able to commend uh, Him. And I think sometimes as Christians um, in our churches, we are often critical of sermons afterwards. You know what it was, what it was like, whether we liked it, whether it said what we thought yes. ought to be said yeah. in the way we want to. Yeah. We can be very critical. But I wonder whether sometimes we don't actually spend time praying for those who are preaching in advance. So we criticise afterwards, but we don't pray for that work of preparation, that care of choice in words, for faithfulness, for power in proclamation. Surely we ought to be praying for the Archbishop of Canterbury in this instance Absolutely. to be able to preach yep. with clarity and faithfulness. Yep. Um, and no doubt it's a daunting weight to know both that you have the audience in front of you but also that worldwide audience. So it's a, a daunting responsibility, but also an astonishing opportunity. Mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned the seamless transition from Her Majesty the Queen to His Majesty the King, Prince Charles becoming King Charles, uh, obviously on the Queen's death. Uh, one of the things that happened there was that Parliament um, have to give a, swear a declaration, um, a solemn oath um, to serve the King. Um, and it was picked up that Sir Keir Starmer, he, he didn't put his hand on the Bible. He, he instead just gave a, a solemn declaration. And some comment was made on this. John, you wrote about this for, for Premier Christianity, I, I think. What, what's your take on um? Sir Keir Starmer making a solemn declaration, but not placing his hand on the Bible?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I, I, my view is, I think I kind of have some respect for him and his integrity, that he is an atheist. That's his position. Um, at one level, it would be hypocritical for him to swear on the Bible and in the name of God, because he doesn't kind of believe. And it seems to me that if that is the case, then, then it's absolutely right that the person act in accordance with their kind of conscience. Um, and actually, this has been an evolving part of the British constitution, Back in the 19th century, at the beginning of the 19th century, you could only be in Parliament if you were an Anglican and not only were offering an oath in the name of God but actually affirming the doctrines of the Church of England. And gradually, um, that became unsustainable in a, in, a, in a country which was kind of multicultural, multi-faith, um, multi-religious. So non-conformists were excluded from Parliament and from serving in all kinds of public office. So um, the oath was changed to make it a, a kind of a Christian oath but not a specifically Anglican oath. Um, then steps were taken to allow Jews Jewish members of parliament to sit who couldn't affirm in the name of the Christian faith, but could affirm uh, on the basis of their faith and, and the Bible. And then eventually in the late 19th century, the issue arose of what about people who were atheists who didn't want to make any kind of religious comment at all? And um, Parliament eventually allowed there to be a solemn affirmation uh, by those who um, did not have any faith in God. When did that happen? Um, I think it was um, 1888 or thereabouts. Okay. Mm. Um, there was actually—I which
2: time it had a Jewish prime minister, of in, course. In,
1: well, yeah. although he yeah. he was a baptized Christian, so Disraeli okay. so had changed his faith right. in order to be able to kind of serve in that way. Actually, it was an, a, an, a, an MP from Northampton who was elected, who was a, an atheist who refused to. Kind of take the oath. In fact, he was imprisoned initially for refusing Mm. to take the oath. And in the end, Parliament allowed him to make a solemn affirmation. In fact, then legislation was introduced that meant that. Um, uh, even in jury service or in other roles, you could choose to affirm rather than to... You've take done jury oath. service, haven't you? I've did done jury service. What did you do? Um, I affirmed, um, but that's because um, generally speaking, I think as Christians, it seems to me Jesus teaches we don't need to take oaths. Our yes should be yes and no should be no. Mm. I was in a jury in which I knew that most of the people there weren't Christians who were happy to swear on the Bible. And at one level, um, I chose
0: specifically not to... So you were the Christian who didn't swear on the didn't. Bible? <laughs> um,
1: which was actually led to some really interesting <laughs> questions because they also knew that I was a reverend in church. So they they were slightly surprised. Why didn't you? And actually, that gave opportunity to be able to speak. Now, I'm not an absolutist about taking oaths. I think that's been a debate within kind of Christians. There can be some contexts in which, for the sake of others, that might be an acceptable thing to do. Um, But my preference is not to. So um, I I commend Keir Starmer for doing that. Um, Actually, he's not the only one. In Mm. 2019, when Parliament sat after the last general election, there were over 150 MPs who chose to affirm Mm. rather than not. Um, Some people think maybe, is, is this a bad sign? Would he make a bad prime minister because he's an atheist? Um, and not willing to kind of affirm on a Bible. My view is common grace means that kind of our political leaders don't have to be Christian. It is not inevitable that a Christian politician is going to be a better leader than a non-Christian. There have been some appalling Christian leaders, appalling human rights abuses that have been perpetrated And we've had some functional atheists anyway, haven't we, in terms of uh, Um, leaders. And I I think that actually I, I, I would prefer people to be honest rather than actually have either hypocrisy or an empty folk religion that is not really meant. I'm sure there are loads of people who swear on the Bible, whether in parliament or in other contexts, for whom their faith is not in any way mm. kind of real, but they're performing um, the ritual. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think um, I would prefer a, a kind of a straightforward um, uh, sort of honesty.
0: Well, Her, Her Majesty's uh, passing. We will uh, watch with interest the funeral uh, on Monday uh, on the bank holiday that's been declared by King Charles. It's a reminder that life goes on, though. There's other things happening in yeah, the it world. it does. You know, I think the Queen was, her,
2: her death was not untimely. Mm. Um, lots of people have talked about being shocked, um, which at one level is, you know, I, I think the shock of it is, well, oh, this is, wow, oh, wow, this is the end of an era. Yeah. Um, the, the shock is not, um, here's someone who is 96 who, who has died, because actually not many people make it to 96, frankly. So there is a, there is a sense in which life does go on and, um, you know, people are born, people die. I I always feel sorry for people who die in this period because it sort of suddenly suddenly gets subsumed, doesn't it, in everything else that goes on. So um, just uh, last night they announced that um, Eddie Butler, um, Welsh rugby captain and um, BBC commentator, very well known BBC commentators died, very young really, 65, of prostate cancer. The second uh, quite famous person to die of prostate cancer in in the space of of two or three weeks, Bill Turnbull, BBC Mm. presenter, died just a few weeks ago and it's just a reminder actually that um you know not everybody has a long life um not everybody lives to, to to 96 and actually death is an ugly intruder and and for some people it is untimely it's painful and there is an urgency too about the mission work that god gives us because actually death does come to all mm. it is unavoidable and for some it comes earlier than is expected and planned you know even before these these two men could could get their state pension Mm. Um, th- th- they've died, and and it's just a good reminder that actually um, life does go on. It, it made me think actually when Kennedy was assassinated back in sixty three, because of course um, there were two other famous deaths on the same day. Aldous Huxley, mm. um atheist uh, writer, died on the same day as did C S Lewis. Mm. And and those kind of deaths were just subsumed in all the noise about um, about Kennedy. I guess rightly so, but it, but it is a reminder actually that even when these um, seemingly significant things happen, that actually the rhythm of life continues. And our job as as Christian ministers actually is to minister to the people in front of us. We keep saying that. And actually, for people in front of us, there will be things they're thinking about to do with the Queen. There will be um, you know emotions and things to, to tackle. But actually, also life goes on. Mm. People are going to work. People are struggling with struggling with money. Mm. People are. Being born, people are dying. People are getting cancer diagnoses. People are ill. People are struggling with autistic children. You know, all those sorts of things don't change just because of the significant moment. And I, th- I think we've got to be careful as as leaders that we don't put all our eggs in one basket. You know, if, if you wake up on on Monday morning, the day of the funeral, and you've got um, if you've got struggles at home, if you've got a very serious health issue yourself, or you're struggling with children with serious health issues, Monday is going to be just as difficult as mm. the next day and the day before. Mm. Um, it's not going to be any different. And so, and so
0: we still need to be ministering to people in their in their current needs, I think. And many of our churches have Ukrainian refugees in at the moment. The that's war right. in Ukraine yeah. is still yeah. ongoing, isn't it? Let's talk about that for a moment. It, it seems to have been potentially a turning point this week, John. Well, that's certainly how it's being presented. There seem to have
1: been astonishing advances by the Ukrainians as they begin to retake territory from um, the Russians, which is not really what anybody expected when this war broke out uh, earlier in the year. So I mean, it's it's easy to forget that the Russian forces were on the very edge of Kiev. um, And it seemed that this kind of massive nation um, was bound to prevail, just overwhelming numbers um, and equipment. Um, So it is remarkable that the Ukrainians seem to be uh, kind of pushing the Russians back. Um, and there's more and more comment along the lines of uh, a hope or an expectation that the Ukrainians will be able to win um, this uh, kind of war. And I guess um, a number of things have contributed to that. It's the supply of weapons from the West that's made a huge difference, particularly the supply of quite high tech weapons, um, the kind of Himal missiles, the, the kind of guided guided shells um, uh, the provision of intelligence and support has helped to even the playing field. Um, and equip the Ukrainians. So being properly equipped to be able to fight um, has made a massive difference to that. Also, obviously, the, the kind of the morale of the Ukrainian forces. It, it seems that there is a collapsing morale amongst many of the kind of Russian units that are fleeing, people who are there not knowing really why they're there, not wanting to be there. Of course, the Ukrainians are, are fighting with remarkable courage to be able to kind of claim back their mm. their, their own... And land. the lack
2: of allies for Russia. I mean, yeah. that's the other surprising thing. So yesterday... Um, Putin went to Azerbaijan, I think Azerbaijan and met President Xi, Xi of, um, of China, and and actually, um, I mean, it the, the wasn't the frostiness, but there was there was a surprising coldness about the relationship mm. and the lack of um, certainly military support that China has given Russia, which is basically zero. So it appears, um, so so China has been buying disc, very heavily discounted Russian oil and gas, but there hasn't been um, a two way trade and mm. uh, you'd expect you know all the things that the west perhaps has been supplying to ukraine and um, perhaps china might be pouring into russia in a sort of you know 1950s 1960s kind of scenario but it's not been happening and actually we've been reading that russia been buying munitions from north korea of mm. all places mm. so 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 clearly um that the allies that have got behind russia appear to be essentially belarus north korea and um, sort of pariah states essentially and and not much else no mm. not much else i
1: mean Anybody who listens to podcasts will know that I'm interested in military history. Um, and I think one of the are you John? Yeah. Is, well, that, is that right? Well, I don't think we've never heard you talk about it. It's been it a kind of a lifetime interest, but actually, as a Christian, one of the reasons for that is because war is so often seen as a metaphor in the Bible mm. for the Christian life, for Christian mission. It's kind of one of the most common, repeated kind of ways of speaking about the Christian task. Now, we've got to be very careful with that because that is a metaphor rather than a call to a literal. Um, uh, kind of war. But that means that lessons that can be learned from conflict do actually just help us reflect on sort of our spiritual struggle. And I think um, in Ukraine, this this idea that the the small country that sort of seemed to be um, in danger of being overwhelmed, that people perhaps thought didn't have a hope, the fact that they are winning um, that victory, I think there are parallels with that, with the spiritual warfare that we find ourselves engaged in. As a church, as Christians, we can feel very small We can feel um, kind of overwhelmed by the scale of opposition, um, by the power of the enemy, by the spiritual forces that we are up against. But actually, the Bible encourages us that the victory will be ours. Mm. God supplies us with the weapons that we need to win and to fight. And In Ephesians, that's the kind of the word of God and prayer. The fact that God speaks, the fact that God hears and answers our prayers, his power through the work of the Spirit. Um, and his provision of protection through the the full armor of God guarantees that we have sufficient to be able to stand and fight and win um, uh, sort of the victory. And in many ways, um, God supplies, but we need to be those who take courage and fight um, with um, confidence of that. So I I think that is the daily struggle of the Christian life, and that is the Ongoing kind of challenge and struggle of the church as it seeks to bring the good news of the mm-hmm. gospel to the world. There's a reason the isn't that Dave,
2: I mean David and Goliath has entered the, yeah. the secular vocabulary as a kind of you know um, uh, underdog against mm-hmm. the you know mm-hmm. the sort of the mighty um, the mighty Philistine. And I mean that's essentially what Ukraine Russia appeared at first, isn't it? It appeared David and Goliath, and that language was used. But actually, that's the nature of the Christian battle. Um, you know, we we've got to not overestimate Satan and his power and influence. But we mustn't underestimate it either. We do have a Mm. a powerful enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. But actually, um, like David, we're not fighting alone. Um, We stand in the name of the Lord, and we are given the the, the weapons we need to fight and and, and win that victory, that Christ has essentially won for us first. Mm. We're standing in his his shadow, aren't we, as we do that?
0: Mm.
1: And I think, actually, Adrian's point about allies, those who are prepared to support and help in the Christian life and in mission. We're not all attacked at the same time at the same point. We do actually need to help and support one another to do that. And in some ways, actually, the very essence of FIEC, independent churches working together, is all about wanting to support and encourage one another so that we can stand firm. Mm. Um, it, it's about sharing our resources with one another. There may be other churches that have got different struggles that need help, support, prayer, money, gifts, people. Being willing to give away in that sense, in the way that the West has done to Ukraine, is a, 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 a sort of, in a sense, pictures the very way that in the New Testament, the churches support one another mm. to be able to kind of engage in the conflict that they find themselves in. And that's exactly what FIC is really all about.
0: We need to bring this into land. There's one other story I wanted to touch on before we finished. When I worked as a journalist, I was always fascinated how quickly the news cycle would change. And that's certainly been the case with regards to the cost of living crisis. So before the death of Her Majesty the Queen, it was all about what Liz Truss was going to do as Prime Minister to help with the cost of living crisis. She announced the energy cap. And then, of course, that that news has really been pushed down the agenda by the death of Her Majesty the Queen. So uh, can we just talk about the cost of living crisis? It's not actually an energy cap. So I I think that's part of the problem. well, so, so yeah, it's a guarantee, it's a guarantee it? of what yes. you'll pay. Well, it is a shift. Um, it is yeah. a shift,
2: actually, from what's, what's been there before. Yeah. So some of the detail is still hazy. Yeah. yeah. And we're gonna but it's going to make a difference, I think. It's going it? to mm. it's gonna make a difference to individuals. It's going to make a difference to organisations as well. Although the the detail of the organisational help hasn't revealed. Yeah, yeah. And obviously for, for churches, that's very relevant. Actually, just picking up on John's point and touching on, on the hardship. Um, FIC has, has, has recently been given a gift um, by a church um not a huge gift but a but a significant gift for us to pass on to churches um who are finding life financially difficult which is just a great example actually of churches standing together mm. I mean, it's about money it's not always about money working together is about all kinds of things um, but we'll be publishing some details on how you can access that over the next few, few days and maybe a couple of weeks but that, that's a good example actually of how a church that's relatively well off has seen the cost of living crisis and said actually it's not just individuals who will need help churches will need help yeah, yeah. and so can you can you distribute this money for us mm. so actually, that's really thrilling to see that churches are actually looking out for one another in that way but yes I mean, I'm, I mean, the inflation is down down slightly mm. this week, and I think fuel prices people will, will notice are going down. That there will be a recalibration, um, but there's no doubt. I mean, I I did the um, this is going to sound very pretentious. I did the, did the shopping order last night online um, rather than going to the shop. Um, but actually, you, you do notice that everything is more expensive. Yeah, yeah I agree. mean, sometimes significantly so. So I think um, the pressure is is down, but not off. Mm. I think on that. Yeah,
0: it feels though with the with with the energy announcement that that was the thing our family was most concerned about, I think, was how high would the energy bill go. It does feel like that we've been rescued from that a little bit or am I overstating that?
1: I'm mildly optimistic that it won't be as bad as has been predicted. Certainly the government is beginning to take massive steps of intervention so um, there was already £400 that we're all going to start getting Mm. from October. Those who are on um, kind of benefits are going to get another £650. Um, There's the cap on the total amount that's going to be paid. Um, It looks likely that government will remove the green levy for a period of time which will be another £150. Um, If predictions are right the fiscal event that's going to be held this week will probably cut taxes cut cut national insurance and therefore people will have more money in their pocket to pay for things so it looks as though the dire predictions as to what would happen and the implications for families and individuals will be largely ameliorated it may
2: not be dissimilar to to the covid thing you're right at the beginning Um, of covid we were saying yeah what's going to happen we're all going to be destitute and actually it turned out for many of us we we weren't spending money on going out. And so actually many people have more money in their mm. pocket. And, and and maybe there will be a, a kind of similar similar reflection at the moment.
1: And I think personally I, I just thinking about the news cycle, I found the summer really depressing. Um, Mm. The news was dominated by how terrible it was going to be, predictions of the dire consequences. The the government, there wasn't a government in place that was able Mm. to make announcements. Um, I have to say, I found kind of watching the news, listening to the news on a regular basis, actually just thoroughly depressed me. Mm. And it could set the agenda for how um, I I would think. I mean, in some ways, I think actually it was a remarkable, a good liberation to be away on holiday and not watching the news in that regard. And then, of course, coming back, the Queen's death has kind of, in a sense, taken the place of those political discussions. And it's just a reminder that sometimes our emotional feelings and perspective can be deeply affected by a uh, kind of a, a new cycle mm. that constantly wants to create crisis and reminders of crises. And it's difficult, I think, at that point to keep a, a personal emotional kind of perspective. Um, I read some time ago, you know, that one of the challenges we face is to kind of, in a sense, ration our news intake so that it doesn't yeah. dominate us in that way. I remember something very helpfully saying, get all your news from reading newspapers. Don't be listening to the news constantly because you listen to news all through mm. all through the day. And I think there is a, there's a, a proper balance to be had of wanting to be informed of what's happening, but not to allow it to psychologically take over. Um, and I struggle to do that,
2: but I've tried to not I Listen need to go to and retune my radio. I hope, we're, I hope we're drawing to a close. Yeah, I've got to go and retune
1: go and my re-tune. radio. <laughs> get
0: rid of Five Live. Uh, no, don't get rid of Five Live. I like um, Five but, Live. Uh, carry actually,
1: on. <laughs> for, for Christians, I think, again, as we preach the gospel, we have to have that balance of, on the one hand, the the, the the news of God's coming judgment, of our sin, of the crisis in which we find ourselves, but yet at the same time, the good news that God has done something. Yeah, it is good
0: news, isn't um, it? Uh, and let's let's touch on that. So the good news of what God has done in the Lord Jesus—that is very much the theme of the evangelism conferences. That That's right. Are yes. Coming up, yeah. Do I want so to say so a little bit I've about that? So I've been involved in that.
2: So we've got Randy Newman coming to four evangelism conferences, first um, of October in Northern Ireland, um, and then the Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So let's work that out. Fourth, sixth, eighth of October, and Tuesday in London at All Souls. Uh, Thursday at Holy Trinity Platt in Manchester and then the Saturday at Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh. Randy Newman is actually a great C.S. Lewis. We talked about C.S. Mm. Lewis a little bit earlier. Mm. He's a great C.S. Lewis expert and he's going to be talking a little bit about C.S. Lewis. I, I think they're great events. Um, they cross denominations, but they're a way really that those who are serving in the work of evangelism can encourage one another in the local
0: church. Um, I'm, I'm going to be at all the, the mainland ones. Love to see you there. It would be great to, to, to be. So, so un- unlikely that many of our folk will go to the Northern Ireland one, but on the 1st of October, we've got our own event going on, John, which is our centenary service at Westminster Chapel in London. Do you want to say a little bit about that before we close?
1: Yeah, this year is the 100th anniversary of the founding of FIEC. Uh, back in 1922, E.J. Paul Connor had a vision to want to uh, bring independent churches together so they could encourage one another and support each other in gospel ministry. We want to give thanks to God for the way that that sort of vision has been blessed over these last 100 years. So we've stood firm for gospel truth. We've grown from what was originally 18 churches to about 630 churches. Um, there are a, a very large number of people who've given an immense amount of time and energy and prayer and support to the work of FIEC over that period and we want to rightly honour that. But we also want to look forward to the future because we think the things that FIEC stands for are in in many ways even more relevant for today as we face the challenges of an increasingly secular non-Christian society when the church is assailed by kind of false teaching that would want to distract from the gospel. So we want to gather together to give thanks, Mm. but also just to remind ourselves of why we exist and why that vision is so important, because we long to see healthy churches in every community that are working together for the cause of the gospel. So we're going to be gathering in um, Westminster Chapel, um, which is a long story there, a remarkable ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was um, in an independent church, a congregational church, which eventually left the Congregational Union and joined FIEC. So there's lots of history mm. connected with um, FIEC. 3 p.m. Mm. 3 p.m. 1st um, of October. Um, for about an hour, an hour and 10 minutes, we're going to give thanks, praise together, Um, Hear God's Word taught, um, our chair of our trust board, Ian Jones, is going to be preaching. And we'd love you to be
2: there, to join us. We've got an anniversary song, Phil. I know,
0: I've heard this. Yeah,
2: Tim Chester and Phil Moore have written us an anniversary song. Fantastic. So uh, previewed um, for the first time at the... Thanksgiving service 1st of October
0: 1st of October 3 o'clock Westminster Chapel do join us if you're able to thanks for listening to Independence the FIEC podcast as we're looking uh, through the news uh, this week Uh, do rate and review the podcast if you've enjoyed it Uh, thank you John and Adrian and we'll speak to you again soon God bless see you thanks Phil